see how well we can all stay awake after lunch. If you uh, turn in the back of your hymnal, we're going to turn our attention briefly again this afternoon to the Confession of Faith. Chapter 4, which is on creation. Last time we considered paragraph 1, which dealt with um, uh, the general creation of all things. And now we want to consider at least part of paragraph 2 today, which paragraph uh, 2. Paragraph 2 focuses on the creation of man. And so that is on page, very top of 673 in your hymnal. So let's read together. This is paragraph 2 of chapter 4, page very top of 673. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to which, or excuse me, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created, being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Let's pray. Father, as we close off our Lord's Day together, considering the things of your word as, it's, as they have come down to us through Christians before us in our confession, we pray that you be our help. Teach us, Father, we pray that you would instruct our minds and also give us hearts that are thankful for your design as we, as we think about the creation of man as the apex of your creation. Uh, as we think about the fact that man was created already, you having decreed that man would fall and that Christ would forever unite himself to humanity, we pray that we would have high views of the sanctity and the uh, the importance of the human race that you have created for your glory. Father, we thank you that you have redeemed sinful man, that as tragic as it is, as the apex of your creation rebelled against you, yet in love you sent your Son to redeem us for the glory of your name, that we would be those who offer you spiritual sacrifices for all eternity, having lips that acknowledge your name and the good things that you've done for us. Teach us this afternoon, we pray. Give us attentiveness. We pray that you would keep us from um, just, just how easy it is, Father, to not, not focus. We pray that you'd help us to uh, focus this uh, last bit of time together, this Lord's Day, on your word. We thank you for your mercies to us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the question, what is man, is a question that many today would simply try to answer it in merely biological terms. Um, But the question, what is man, is something that cannot be uh, answered solely by the science of biology and the study of the physical body. Um, In fact, it is that view that has led many to very destructive worldviews. Hamlet, um, there's a quote that says, What is a man uh, if his chief good and the market of his time is simply to sleep and to feed? He is but a beast and no more. Uh, And it's kind of this um, diminishing of the glory of man as created in the image of God on to the same level as the beast's which is very similar to what Darwinism and evolutionary thought has done as well. Um, Man is, in that worldview, nothing more than a coincidence. He's not designed. He is an accident, and what Joel Beakey called its beauty, all beauty and design and wisdom are reduced reduced to a hideous fatalism. Um, And those are worldviews where if you follow that trajectory of thought consistently does lead to very destructive things. Um, Meaninglessness, uh, among other things. But in sharp contrast to those types of worldviews, the Bible and the Christian faith teaches that man is not an accident, 
but rather man, even fallen man, is the masterpiece of God. And so to order, answer the question, what is man, we need to go beyond mere sciences of biology, and we must rather hear what God says on the matter. And that's what paragraph um, 2, as I mentioned, focuses on, it zooms in, if you will, on God's creation of man and his constitution and his purpose. And so I want to consider, I, I won't get through the whole paragraph, but I do want to deal with it uh, around roughly the first half of it. Um, and then we'll pick up next time on what it means to have the law written on our hearts and things like that. But let's begin at the beginning of uh, paragraph two. It says, after God had made all other creatures. Now, it might stand out to you, it's significant that the confession uses the time marker there, after. Uh, it's obvious that for them, the sequence of events in Genesis meant something. Uh, it's, it's not just... Uh, wasn't just merely an indicator of chronology, if you will, but rather what the confession's picking up on here, and I think rightfully so from the Genesis account, is that man, being God's final creation, communicates something of the special place that man occupies in God's world. Um, you think about the creation account, over the first six days, the the world was shaped by God with increasing complexity and order. And what began as formless and void uh, suddenly gives way piece by piece to the ordered world that we know um, with what the water systems and land and the beasts that roam the field and all these things. Um, highly structured systems come into place over those first six days of Genesis. Um, what was chaos became ordered. And what's important to realize is that all of that was preparatory. Everything that God did in the first six days was preparation for God's greatest creature, man. Man was to be the crown of creation. He was to be different from the beasts, he is, in the Genesis account, distinct from the animal kingdom. He's the one who names the animals. Uh, he is to be different from the plants. But instead, man is, was to be uniquely made in the image of God and put upon earth as the one who would rule creation under God. Um, John Calvin said, quote, he said, we ought to... Uh, we ought in the very order of things diligently contemplate God's fatherly love towards mankind in that He did not create Adam until He had lavished upon the universe all manner of good things. So you think about Adam's first awakening to existence, if you will. Adam awakened not to a formless void, but rather he awakened to a world of wonders that had been created by God for him to enjoy and for him to rule over. Um, and in this sense, creation is subservient to man. Right? Psalm 115, verse 16, it says, The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of man. And we, also, we obviously understand what that doesn't mean. The psalmist is not saying that just as the Lord owns heaven, we now own the earth in that way. But there is a, a unique way in which God has placed man, male and female, over this creation to rule it and subdue it. And in fact, just to make this point, um, that's why when man falls into sin, what happens to the whole created order? Animals and nature. It's also subjected to futility. right? Romans 8 talks about that. And that's because creation follows man who is its ruler, right? And so when Adam falls, the creation falls. And what happens when the last Adam comes and redeems the world? The creation is going to again be set free into the freedom of the children of God. So there's this Adam falls and creation falls after him. Christ comes... Uh, uh, um, inaugurates a new creation, and one day we look forward to when this futile world, uh, however, I'm trying to think of the word to say that, um, 
this world that's been subjected to futility will be restored to the glorious freedom for which it was created to serve humanity. Um, now, there's one other way in which the Genesis account draws attention to the honor that man occupies, not only by the fact that he was created last, but also by the announcement of the divine counsel uh, prior to man's creation. So, you think about when God created um, the waters and the land, he said thing like, let, things like, let there be, right? Let there be light, um, let the waters separate from the waters that are above, things like that. And yet when it comes to man, suddenly we see this language of let us make man in our image. And it's the idea of a, um, a consultation, if you will, amongst the persons of the Trinity. Um, it, it, it emphasizes the particular care, if you will, in which man is created by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, obviously we understand that these are manners of speaking. We're not, you shouldn't infer from that 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 means, well, with everything else, God just kind of haphazardly made it. We understand that all creation is created out from the infinite wisdom of God. But it's these humanly ways that God communicates. There is something of a special care for humanity that God suddenly says, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image. Um, and it, it is significant that God would take that special care, if you will, particularly for the, for the creation of man. Because you think about it, the, the human race, humanity, the creation of man, it is the foundation upon which God's greatest act to glorify himself stands upon. Right? What's God's greatest act in this world to glorify himself. It's Christ the Son coming incarnate, right? Dying as a man, rising again as a man. And so you think about the special care that's being taken at the beginning. It's because God, we already know, His eternal decree, even as Adam is created upright and sinless and innocent, God has already decreed that that Adam is going to fall, the human race is going to fall in him, and he's going to send his son to unite himself forever to this very humanity. And so another reason why um, it, it raises the heights, if you will, of the, the centrality and the importance of, of humanity. So that, that's the first thing um, after, I just want to spend a little bit of time on that, after God had created all other things, he created man. Um, the, the confession then states explicitly male and female. So man here, as it's used in Genesis 1 and 2, does not just mean male. Man means mankind composed of male and female. Uh, together, God makes man and woman to be the apex of creation. And they are made to be complementary to one another. So uh, moving on, next phrase... <coughs> trying to cover this when I cough. Um, so he created, after everything else, he created man. He's the apex of creation. He created him male and female. And then the confession says, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created. That's a really significant statement and description of man. Um, and there are several things here that highlight how man is unique, as well as highlighting the unique purpose of man. It says, first, God created man with reasonable and immortal souls. Okay, so the confession here is describing man's constitution, what man is. And these things are things that distinguish him from the plants and the animals over which he was to rule. Okay, and I want to just spend a, 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 well, maybe a couple paragraphs here opening up why this is a very important thing, Christian, especially in our day with so many embracing evolution, just unbelieving thought all around us, almost any explanation except for the Christian one seems like a good one. We need to be clear on the difference between man and particularly the beast, the animals. Um, because evolutionary theory and you know, Darwinism and other unbelieving worldviews in 
most of them, they place man and beast in the same stream of creature, okay? And kind of along the lines of, you know, we're all part of the the circle of life, right? We're all part of the same animal kingdom. Um, What's another one? Um, Oh, you've seen the... You know, when you, when you watch evolution happen on the page and you see, I don't know what they call the first one, the Neanderthal, or, well, no, I guess it would be before that. You see some creature and then some creature and then it kind of looks like a monkey and eventually it kind of looks like a human. What's that teaching you? We are the same, we're in the same class and family as monkeys. It's just we are, happen to be a little more developed or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, that worldview has horrible implications, and history has already borne out those, those horrible implications. Um, one, believing that, that man is no different from animals, that he was made to rule over, it undermines and destroys the distinct sacredness and uniqueness of man's value being made in the image of God. Um, I, I remember, I don't remember if some of you were there with me when this happened, but um, I don't know, a couple years ago at the abortion clinic, we were obviously being there um, trying to engage with people, and someone approached us or me, and they asked me the question, have you ever eaten meat? And the question's obvious, yes, I mean, I like meat. And then they went on to say how I'm a hypocrite for eating a steak, but then simultaneously trying to tell them that what they are doing here at Planned Parenthood is wrong. And that whole argument stems from we're just another animal, right? I mean, how can you eat steak and then speak against this? Because we're the same thing. And basically they're saying you're, you're a hypocrite. Well, that flows from a worldview that denies man's uniqueness being made in the image of God. Um, Secondly, though, I mean, not only does it diminish man's value, it also tends to almost deify beasts that man was created to rule over. Um, we have people, and this is no offense, if any of you are vegetarians by choice or vegans by choice, it's totally fine. I don't, I don't care whether you eat meat or not. But it does become a problem when someone starts to think, no, vegetarianism or veganism is the moral high ground, right? Because that's not what God says. God has given man to rule over the beasts, even to kill and eat them. Now, we all understand we still owe God's other creatures compassion, kindness. I mean, it's not like it's just free game. You treat them however you want. But God has given them to us for our good, to steward wisely, to eat, to enjoy, things like that. Um, And so it tends to also deify animals over above the importance of the value of man. Um, so the reason, the, the question we should answer is, well, why? Why do we differentiate between the dignity of man and a cow, for instance? Well, one of the reasons is what the confession says here is that God has endued man with reasonable and immortal souls. Okay? Animals do not have immortal souls. Animals are not going to rise on Judgment Day and stand before Christ and give an account for the deeds done in the body. Um, Man, on the other hand, is created with an immortal soul such that even when the body dies, the soul lives. And we live before God in a unique way. Um, Animals are instinctive creatures. Um, they act upon impulse and, um, and instinct as God has, has put it in them. But man is created with a reasonable soul. Man has a mind given to him. He has a will given to him. Man evaluates and makes judgments of right and wrong. Right? Man uniquely, and in terms of earthly creatures, not excluding angelic creatures... Man uniquely is created with the ability to consciously, reasonably worship God. Um, Which, as the confession says, renders us fit unto that life to God for which they were created. That's an important, that's a, a statement of our purpose, right? We were created this way with reasonable and immortal souls so that we would be uniquely fit for the unique purpose God made us for. Namely, a life to God. 
for which we were created. Um, man is made for God in a unique way that dogs were not made for God. Um, we were made to live a life of conscious, reasonable communion with God. To give God our reasonable service, Romans 12. We were created to be the friend of God, the companion of God. Uh, we were created to think, to love, to serve, and have all of our thoughts directed towards Him who made us. That's important. Out of all creation, it is man whom God created to have a unique and special relationship with Himself. That's very important. I know we already know that. I mean, you know, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sounds like we already know it, but the confession here going into some of the reasons behind that is very enlightening of why man is set apart from these other creatures. Um, I'll just make this last comment before we move on. Just to kind of give biblical, um, I don't uh, support this biblically. Luke nineteen fourteen. Uh, people are telling Jesus rebuke these people for what they're saying, and Jesus says, "If these remain silent, even the the stones or the rocks will cry out." Right now, why is that? I mean, people hear that. What do you, stones cry out? Why does that strike us as strange? Stones don't cry out in worship, right? They're not created with reasonable, immortal souls that relate to God in such a way where they can actually praise God volitionally. Um, now, to be to put it this way, all of God's works will praise Him, right? Even the oceans, the rivers, the animals, they all exist and act according in such a way that they would bring glory to God. But they glorify God in what we might call a passive way, right? Does a cow glorify God? Yes, because he's the creature of God that displays the wisdom of God. But does a cow glorify God the way a human glorifies God? No. Why? It's because they glorify God by mere instinct. Man glorifies God by reasonable service. Um, now, the confession says, next thing, hopefully I didn't botch that last part. I got, I got mixed up and I had to paraphrase. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, the next thing the confession says is being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. So this is where, this is where I'm going to end today after opening this up. Because all of the, what we've read so far has to do with man's constitution. The next words will then deal next time with what it means with God writing the law upon our hearts. In paragraph 3 where it talks about positive law of having the tree of knowledge of good and evil and things like that. So, what does it mean for man to be made in the image of God? Or in the likeness of God? That's what I want to open up. Uh, in our last section, and then I've just got two brief applications, and then we'll take questions. Well, the word, this, there's nothing that's going to surprise you. It's not like I'm going to tell you, actually, the word image in Genesis doesn't mean image, or likeness doesn't mean likeness. I think we know what those words mean. Image means that. It means being made in the image, which has to, this carries the sense of an artistic depiction of something, um, like a picture, right? A photo. The term likeness means a pattern of similarity, right? And those words, by the way, likeness and image, are used virtually interchangeably. And when you take the terms together, we're given this very simple definition that man being made in the image of God and the likeness of God means that man is a created representation of God who is like God in certain respects, okay? Nothing too groundbreaking there. Okay, you've basically repeated yourself. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means to be like God. <laughs> okay. Now, what does that mean? That's the next question. Um, but the Lord, in creating man in His image, designed that we human beings would be limited, finite, visible, earthly creatures that resemble God for His glory. Okay. Now, 
I would argue that man being made in the image of God has something to do both with what man is, our constitution, but also something that man does, his function. And that's kind of been a question that's been, I don't know, discussed by, by theologians throughout the history of the church is, what is the image of God? Is it something that we are given in addition to our humanity? Uh, is, it, uh, is it something we simply are? Is it something that we do? And I would argue that there are elements of, first of all, it's something that we are. God says, let us create man in our image. Man is the image of God, not just something he, man possesses. But it also has to do with our function, why God made us um, for his glory. Um, and and I'll, I'll just give you a brief explanation of why I think that. In Genesis, I encourage you next time you read Genesis 1 and 2, maybe read it with this kind of a framework in your mind. In Genesis, there is a close connection and relation between man being made in the image of God and man's kingship over the world. Those two ideas, man in my image and man will rule and take to, or have dominion, are often paired together in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. So, for instance, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and the very next words, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. Or again, Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, So then, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every other living creature that moves on the earth. So, just from those two texts, I hope you see that there's at least a connection between man being made in the image of God and his function as God's um, servant king, if you will, on earth. Sometimes the term uh, vice regent is used. I think that's helpful because it's trying to emphasize it's not like we're an equal to God, like he rules this, you know, 50% and we rule but rather we rule the creation that he made under his authority, right? The idea of vice regents. Um, but that whole function of ruling dominion is often placed side by side with being made in the image of God. And I think what that's getting at is that God created man, like I already said, to image him not only in our constitution and what we are, but also in our function. God is the God who spoke everything into existence out of nothing. And then, by his authority, he brought order from chaos. And so, too, man, as male and female, is to reflect that, to then take dominion over the creation that God gave to man. Um, It's very interesting. Some of you probably know this if you've read historic, um, uh, what would you call them? This kind of books on the, the outside history of things that went on during the times of the Bible with other countries and customs and things like that. It's very interesting that in the ancient world, like would have been contemporaries with Moses, for instance, kings often would set up images of themselves all over their kingdom to represent their authority. Right? So, for instance, a king would erect statues or images of himself in different places so that whoever was there, they would see that statue and guess what they would remember? That king rules here. right? That, that's the king that has dominion and ownership in this place. Um, well, the living God has made living images to represent His authority on earth. And it's not just given to the elite of the human race, but every human being is an image bearer of God who is supposed to represent God's authority on earth. Um, As I've already said, that's, that's our function. We exist to live to God in a unique way by reflecting God both in who we are and what we do in a way that the animals and the beasts and the plants cannot. So that's something, I've just made a comment about function, right? So God created man, male and female, 
to take dominion, right? And that reflects something of the image of God. But you think about it this way. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of how to word it. Uh, in order to do something and fulfill a function, you have to be constitutionally made to be able to fulfill that function, right? So what if God had said to... I'm trying to think of what's a, a non-intelligent animal. What? Mule. Mule. Okay, there we go. So what, how would it have gone if God had said to the mule, as we now know the mule, be fruitful and multiply. That would have been fine. But take dominion over the earth. Rule over these. The mule's not, not been constitutionally made... There's, I don't know why you're... I'm not going to ask why you're laughing. Okay. Yeah, that's what I figured. Oh. Okay, that wouldn't go fine. Mules are sterile. What's a mule? It's a donkey and a horse. And they're sterile? See, I didn't, I didn't know that. Thank you, Gary, for picking like the one type of animal that can't... All right. Donkey. Donkeys reproduce, right? Okay. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Um, donkey. There we go. So, in order for man to fulfill the function God has given him, man has to be made constitutionally with the ability to fulfill that, right? Um, and so we also reflect God not only in our function, but in our being. Um, now, when we, say, when we say we're made in the likeness of God, um, we obviously understand that doesn't mean that we participate in the divine nature, but it's a finite reflection of... Uh, we are a finite reflection of the infinite God. Um, there we go. <laughs> Grabbed him. Got him. Um, Abrakul, uh, Wilhelmus Abrakul, he said, the divine image consists in a faint resemblance to the communicable attributes of God. And so, I'll, I'm just going to summarize these, and then um, uh, we'll bring it to a close, and I'll, I'll make just a couple applications. Um, man reflects God in one sense. Uh, we're made in the image of God. It implies that we, are, we have personality and volition, right? So... God in Genesis 1, it's, it's not just stated that, um, it's not, Genesis 1 is not a list of events caused by an impersonal power, but the, it, they are the acts of a personal agent. Right? J.I. Packer said that creation as depicted by Genesis 1 was the work of a mighty mind forming and executing purposes and then even evaluating his own achievements, Right? These are the things we see in Genesis 1 God is doing. And so, therefore, man made in his image is also rational, volitional, and personal. A personal being. Um, if you think about it, man could not image forth God's wisdom and goodness if we lacked the capacity to think and choose. Right? There would be a huge, um, something very big missing if we didn't have a mind. There would be something very incongruent with us and God. But also, not only... That, that's what I think the confession's getting at when it talks about possessing knowledge. We are made in the image of God in knowledge. But also, the next two things it emphasizes are what we might call moral, morality, is it says we are not only created in knowledge or with knowledge, but also in righteousness and true holiness. So we were created not only as personal beings, volitional beings with minds, but we were created morally upright. Um, all of us in this room probably know that there have been plenty of kings and rulers in the history of the world who were very intelligent, and yet they used that intelligence for great evil. Right? Well, similarly, it wouldn't have been good, Genesis 1, it was very good. If God had created man simply with the ability to think, but not with the um, 
moral aspects and components of righteousness and true holiness. Now, we'll talk about that next time, about how the confession will go on to say that obviously man was able to fall from that, left to the freedom of his own will. But nonetheless, as made by God, I can't remember who it was, I read this week, but they said, as Adam and Eve come forth from the hands of God, they are not sinful, not depraved. They are not just thinking creatures, but they are thinking creatures who are moral and righteous and holy. Um, now, let me... Um, I'm just going to skip some of this. I kind of opened up the image of God. I'll, I'll just say this for just in 30 seconds. Um, the question of the image of God after the fall is debated. Well, it has been debated, just like virtually everything else. Um, and this has to do with how you answer the question, what is the image of God? Is it just something that man is given by God, that he possesses, that he can lose? Or is it something he is? And uh, I would argue that the image of God is something that has been marred by sin, distorted by sin, but not utterly lost. We still are the image of God, even as fallen image bearers. We still do reflect God, but as sinners, we reflect Him poorly. And that's why Christ, who Colossians and other places is called the image of the invisible God, He comes as the last Adam, the second man, and He then redeems and restores our fallen, corrupt humanity back into the fullness of the divine image, restoring us to right knowledge, right, right, a true righteousness, and true holiness. So, just going to make that. I wanted to make that comment in terms of kind of the theme of the image of God. Uh, a text I forgot to mention. A text James explicitly calls even fallen sinners the image of God. So that's one example. Genesis five as well says that man continues to be reproduced in the image of God. Uh, and Genesis 9 as well. Um, so, let me turn to application. And it's very possible that I skipped some things in my manuscript that my application was based on. But we'll see. Um, I've got just two, two brief things. Um, uh, yes, only two. I think. Yes, two. Number one, application very simple takeaway. We were, speaking of collectively the human race, we were created for God. Um, man, out of all creatures, was created for the highest life. We are the apex of creation and we have been given the apex of all the privileges to know and to love God and to live with God. And that's why idolatry, um, false worship and serving sin is such a perversion in man is because that is us acting more like the beasts than as the creature we were created to be. We were literally created for the end of a special life with God. Different than the bear and the dog knows life with God. And we rational creatures so irrationally turned away from that and we serve sin, and we serve the creation, and we make false gods, and we make idols. Um, that's why uh, life in sin, lived in sin, and the man just pursuing his sins, that's why it always proves to be a life of futility, is because the creation cannot give us what we seek because we weren't created to be satisfied by creation. We were created uniquely to be satisfied by God. Um, as Jeremiah, he gives the analogy of, you know, two great evils my people have committed against me. They have turned away from me the fountain of living water. But as if that wasn't bad enough, they then, they've gone out and they've tried to drink water out of broken cisterns. Cisterns that hold no water. That's what human sin is. It's... it's rational, immortal souls turning away from the very one for whom our souls were made. And then turning to things like dirt, pieces of rock and stone and saying, these things will give me life. These will give me satisfaction. We were made for God. And that, we should press that on our... It was Augustine who said... Um, I'm going to paraphrase it. My soul is always restless until it finds its rest in thee. Something along those lines. 
That's something that we still see reflected in fallen man, right? It's not like the fact that they were made for God just all of a sudden went away. It's just that they're now trying to replace that with tons of other things. And yet, I'm sure you, like I, have known plenty of people who it never comes up being satisfying. They go from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, seeking happiness, seeking joy, and it never comes. We should, as evangelists, grab a hold of that and say, that's because you were made for something more than money. You were made for something more than pleasure in the things of this world. So, we were made for man. Uh, er, Woman was made for man. We were made for God. (laughs) Um, Don't, Thaddeus. (laughs) You're going to get in trouble again. (laughs) All right. um, Second, can can we come back? Second application. We... Um, all life is sacred because of the image of God. Okay? That's the second very simple takeaway. All mankind is sacred. All human life is sacred because of the image of God. Um, the fact that the Bible states from the very beginning that man is wholly distinct from the beasts, as I've already said, is of utmost importance to us in our day. I already mentioned animals are worthy. Don't get me wrong. I don't want anyone leaving this room thinking, therefore, it's okay for us to go abuse animals, beat them, torture. Not at all. There is such a thing as sinful stewardship, even of the things God has given us authority over. But, though they are um, worthy of our respect and you know, responsible care, they are nonetheless given to us for our need and use. We may kill animals, we may eat them, we may use them for our, in our service, but God speaks of human life very, very differently. God explicitly, in multiple places, makes any harming or taking of innocent human life absolutely off limits. All abuse of an image bearer, all harm, All of those things, God says, no. Animals you may kill, but this creature you do not harm. Rather, we are commanded, Christians, not just to do this for other Christians, but every image bearer, believer or not, we are to do all within our power to promote the longevity and the quality of life of our fellow image bearers. Um, We must do that which promotes life, not death. Not just physically, but for instance, we must speak well of our neighbor and not murder his reputation. We must do good to them. We must defend the innocent. Um, Related to this too, I would say, um, let's see, what did I put? Yes, Related to this, not only should Christians argue passionately for the duty of us to do good and promote the life of every image bearer, Christians also ought to actively support the idea of the death penalty for murder. And I know that's unpopular, not necessarily amongst Christian circles, but there are so many, because they don't understand the unique value of man... That they, they will say to you, you're just being a hypocrite if you want to take another human life for the, play, for the one that was already taken. Why shed more blood? And the answer is because to allow someone to take innocent life and to do nothing about it is to basically say, what about human life? No different than the animals. But God has said, He who sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? That's the true way you honor human life. If we can destroy the image of God without any... um, any, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Repercussions. We are essentially saying that really human life is not sacred. So... That's, that's an implication of, of these things. Man is made in the image of God. Um, also, a third thing I'll just mention briefly. When we think of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, we obviously, first of all, think of it in the, in the physical sense. Um, but also, as I already mentioned, you can murder your neighbor's reputation. 
You can do all sorts of harm to your neighbor that might not be an immediate threat to his physical life, but it is a threat to his well-being in this life. This concept of man made in the image of God also destroys all forms of partiality, um, racism, discrimination. Um, I mean, you name it, you can basically discriminate someone on the basis of anything. Um, But rather, the Bible says, no, the whole human race is descended from one set of parents, and both of those parents uh, were made in the image of God, and therefore, each and every soul is the image of God. doesn't matter how different someone is from me. doesn't matter if they're poor and I'm rich or what, you know, whatever, how weird they are and how not weird I think I am, which is probably not true. doesn't matter. They are the image of God and we owe them our service and our care, including we owe them, as I was talking about this morning, we owe... T- talking to them about Christ. That's one of the greatest ways we can love our neighbor and promote their life is by promoting their spiritual life. And so, man made in the image of God, every man, doesn't matter how small, how big, how short, how tall, whatever, every image bearer is made in the image of God and therefore we ought to love them as our neighbor and that includes not letting any prejudice keep us from sharing Christ with someone. Okay, I'm going to close there. A little bit uh, just summarizing some of these things. But let me open it up uh, if there's any questions or comments or clarifications or anything along those lines. Anyone? Any questions or comments? You got one? Yeah. Okay. It's not about mules, is it? Yeah, so being fruitful, multiply. Yeah. So um, what do, you, do you think that in our image-bearing and what you brought up, like us being vice regents and um, being those that are entrusted with, you know, over the earth, do you think that like the um, our abil- our create our creative abilities, such as um, building a house, uh, painting a picture, um, things that obviously are unique to man? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you do? You think those are uniquely um, that those play a role in our image bearing, or those are things that uniquely? showcase us being image bearers of God, things of that nature, because we can, we, we obviously can't create like God created, but we have some creative powers. Yeah. Trying to remember, you mentioned specifically paint or like painting, creating artistically, musically, um, you know, uh, building structure, developing technology, you know, all those kinds of areas where we at one level, um, yeah, I, I like to, to take the analogy or, or say sometimes the, like, thinking about what man's accomplished and think, we just got put on this earth with, like, rocks and dirt uh-huh. and trees and yeah. look at what we have. You know, like that kind of idea that, look, we, out, of, out of nothing came something in, yeah. in a way. You know? Yeah. I mean, my short answer would be, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what, um, you kind of said it all, yeah. so I don't have much to add, but yeah. Yeah, I would definitely see those as, uh, and, and obviously still even in unbelievers, a lot of times more in unbelievers than in Christians. Like, you've got certain artists that are unbelievers that there's not a Christian who can keep up with them in terms of skill level, you know, and things like that. Music, same thing. Uh, but yeah, I think all of those things bear witness to the uniqueness of man taking dominion God gave us the, the, the components and it glorifies God when we, under God's rule, uh, cause the creation to serve us. Obviously, it's, there's, not to get into another subject, but that's kind of related to the question of like, how does that original dominion mandate still apply to us today? 
how does it how did Christ fulfill it? You know, those sorts of things. But nonetheless, I do think that we still see in man's constitution and in his the things that he takes an interest in, the things that he accomplishes, there is just a obviously he's fighting against thorns and thistles now and by the sweat of his brow, but nonetheless there's still that image that man was created to subdue, to rule. And obviously that's fulfilled in Christ. Christ comes as the king of all creation, subdues our enemies. He's our king. But even like Revelation talks about several times, and we will reign with him. And so there's this, what was lost in the beginning is restored in the new heavens and the new earth, you know. So anyway, that's kind of another subject. Anyone else? Aaron? It's possible I missed it. Um, did you touch on what it means that we were created male and female? I briefly touched on it. Um, yeah, I briefly touched on it. Just that God created us um, complementary to one another, that male and female are man, mankind, by which God, uh, uh, together glorify God. Sorry, I'm, I'm yeah. just tripping up on my words. I think it's interesting as we see just kind of the disintegration of those categories yeah. in our culture today that we see the corruption of God's good design. Yeah. Um, seeing the effects of the curse, even in the curse originally, how, you know, God said that Eve's desire would be for her husband. And within that, you have this kind of reversal of the creation order um, there in that category. And I think it's, it's interesting that even in uh, our confession that was written some 400 years ago, that uh, the awareness of just maleness and femaleness yeah. is something that the, the authors here found necessary to state, yeah. not with the same awareness of the concerns that we have today, yeah. but still with an awareness of the biblical categories and yeah. their, their priority. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, my choice to not really go into depth on that was simply because there's some other things that we're probably less familiar with, and I thought, let's handle those. But yeah, absolutely. Would definitely be worthy of our consideration for more depth and opening up um, issues of gender, roles, all those things, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, yeah. I also thought it was really helpful, just the awareness of that first phrase after he'd made all the other creation, yeah. uh, how you described the, the ideal world that God created for Adam before, putting, before placing him in yeah. the garden. That's something I'd not thought of before that's really, really helpful to see. Yeah. Anything good, I just steal it from Beaky, so... <laughs> <laughs>